Okay, welcome everybody. I think we're, we'll get going. Um, welcome to LSE. My name is Michael Mason. I'm the director of the uh, Middle East Centre here at LSE. Um, welcome to this event, which is a, a book launch and a celebration, I think, of, of this wonderful book, uh, which has been... I'm always really uh, happy to attend a book launch with a book uh, um, written, published by one of my colleagues, uh, Spiros Sophos at the LSE Middle East Centre, so it's a particular pleasure. I shall introduce uh, Spiros shortly and our, and our other speakers. Just a few sort of uh, uh, housekeeping uh, sort of uh, details. Um, this event is running through till half past six. Um, um, the uh, Spiros is going to talk for, it's actually a very precise time you've worked out, haven't you? It's like uh, 10 minutes and 51 seconds, is it? It's been, been rehearsing. Yeah, and then our and our, our, our distinguished guest will then say some comments about the book between five to ten minutes, and that will give us about hopefully at least twenty five minutes of questions from the audience. Um, the uh, just say very quickly, there are flyers for the book in front of you. If you haven't got one, there are there are more here, um, which gets you a, a whopping thirty percent discount uh, of the book's uh, price. Uh, we also have some copies of a Middle Eastern uh, publication, which is free, uh, by the way, which Spiros uh, wrote. Um, when we do the Q&A, uh, we'll pass around a roving mic, and uh, we'll do a couple of questions at a time, and I'll ask you to introduce yourselves uh, briefly uh, before asking your question. This session is being recorded for uh, a podcast after the event. This has been audio-visual uh, podcast. With the cameras up there, um, and so now we, let me go on to the, uh, the, the sort of the key business. So this is uh, we're launching at this event the book Turkish Politics and the People: Mass Mobilization and Populism, and the author of that book, sitting on my left here, is uh, Spiros Sofos, who's um, a colleague at the Middle East Centre. He's a political scientist here at LSC. Uh, he's a founder editor or lead editor of the Open Democracies Rethinking Populism strand, which is a fantastic strand. Go to it. It's got wonderful podcasts and publications. Um, he's a PhD in regional and cross-cultural studies from the University of Copenhagen and previously worked as a researcher and lecturer at the City for Advanced Middle Eastern Studies at Lund University in Sweden. Also served as a senior research fellow in politics at Kingston University and a senior research fellow and senior lecturer in politics at Portsmouth University. His other books include Nation and Identity in Contemporary Europe, uh, Tormented by History, Nationalism in Greece and Turkey, Islam in Europe, Public Spaces and Civic Networks. He was also creditor of the Islam and Nationalism uh, Palgrave Macmillan book series. As uh, 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 Spiros is a, is a prolific and, and well-regarded, highly regarded sort of colleague um, uh, into our two guests who are going to say some comments about the book. Uh, on my right, my immediate right, is uh, Dr. Bahar Bashir, who is an associate professor at Darwin University School of Government, International Affairs. Previously, she was an associate professor at the Center for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University, where she led the Peace Building and Conflict Transformation Research Group. She's an expert in the area of diaspora studies, peace building, conflict transformation, with a regional focus on the Middle East. 
She's ed the editor of a, a Kurdish studies series uh, published by Lexicon Books and co-editor of a Diasporas and Transnationalism series published by Edinburgh uh, University Press. And, uh, and next to Baha is uh, uh, Dimitar Berchev. He's a Russian East European Studies affiliate at the School of Global Area Studies, University of Oxford. His research interests are the politics of Central Eastern Europe, uh, the Balkans and Turkey, as well as Russian foreign policy. Amongst his recent books are Turkey under Erdogan, uh, Yale University Press, 2022, Historical Dictionary of North Macedonia, Rival Power, Russia in Southeast Europe, and co-editor of Russia Rising, Putin's Foreign Policy in the Middle East and North Africa. You can, just the sheer amount of books I've just been sort of citing, you know, that'll take you some time to get through those. Uh, very, very distinguished guests. I welcome them to LSE, and I shall now pass over to, to Spiros. So thank you very much, Michael, for this uh, introduction, and thank you to our uh, discussants. Uh, I'm very happy you are here to discuss the book. And thank you to Nadine as well for uh, uh, finding time in here, very busy schedule to organize this. And thank you to all of you that uh, took the time to come here and uh, uh, discuss the book with, uh, with us. Um, so I, will, uh, I have a brief PowerPoint, which I thought might make, it, might make my monologue a little bit more pleasant. So I will uh, try to start. I would like to say that uh, Turkish, uh, Turkish politics and the people has been uh, 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 coming out for a long time. I've been working on this book for quite a while, and uh, 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 I must say that uh, the the prime, the, the, the key concerns that uh, prompted me writing it uh, w were also present uh, for a long time in my thinking about uh, uh, both Turkey and populism. So what is this thinking? The first uh, element has to do with uh, my interest in populism, and uh, uh, I would say I find uh, uh, the current discussion on populism very interesting, but also uh, quite unsatisfactory. So I have been arguing that we need a really critical theory of uh, uh, populism that is both uh, theoretically sophisticated and at the same time uh, uh, grounded in uh, uh, the societies that uh, we are studying and that retains its critical edge. The second element has to do with a question that has been, in some ways, to use something from the title of a previous book, uh, tormenting me in some ways. Uh, so uh, the question is, uh, how can, uh, how, why have representative democratic institutions in Turkey uh, not taken root? Uh, and uh, uh, in many ways, why have they given, why has this, uh, I would say, uh, deficit? has uh, uh, led to what I call in the book and elsewhere a difficult democracy. Uh, okay, the answers cannot uh, be summarized here, but uh, here's a PowerPoint with them, uh, a PowerPoint slide. So I would uh, argue that uh, uh, in many ways, regarding the first question, uh, 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 Turkish politics and the people is trying to address uh, uh, the existing literature on populism in a synthetic and analytical approach at the same time. So it tries to uh, bring together uh, contributions from different uh, uh, perspectives, so resource mobilization theory, uh, discourse analysis, and so on, uh, and uh, tries to also integrate it into a broader, uh, I would say, problematic about uh, democracy and democratic politics. 
So uh, I'm arguing, and I think I will read a little bit of what I'm arguing, because I, uh, I think uh, in the book I try to see populist rhetoric, leadership, performance, and organization as parts of uh, what I would call a productive discourse in the broadest sense of the term, read Foucault here. Uh, so um, effectively, uh, this discourse pits a popular national unity against individual and particularistic rights, in my opinion. Uh, of course, it also uh, introduces a binary divide in society between uh, the people and at the same time uh, the enemies, uh, the foes of the people, uh, be they conspirators, uh, foreigners, or uh, the elites. But I think the most important element has to do with how it conceptualizes democracy. I think the discourse has profound political implications as it turns the people into an entity that is hard to define. Uh, we, we, we cannot really talk to the people in many ways, and whose voice is impossible to decipher into the sole bearer of rights uh, at the expense of particularistic or individual rights, uh, instead of trying to socialize these rights, deepen them, and radicalize them. Uh, such an understanding of democracy, it goes without saying, disregards the rights of dissenters, undermines the legitimacy and efficacy of institutions that might challenge or scrutinize appeals to the popular, to the people. Uh, for example, quite often we see that populist uh, uh, leadership in different countries uh, vilifies courts uh, because they distort the will of the people. Uh, they sometimes uh, uh, want to bypass effective pluralistic par parliaments and constitutions as technicalities and, uh, that uh, really uh, 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 make the uh, voice of the people difficult to be heard in some ways. Um, and uh, uh, therefore, uh, if I can move a little bit, I would argue that if we move to Turkey, uh, I would uh, argue that uh, the, uh, yeah, probably I should go back. Uh, the populist turn of the past uh, uh, two decades, I would say a little less than two decades, uh, I'm arguing in the book cannot be understood in, uh, in a void. It needs to be set in a historical context and uh, it needs to uh, effectively uh, go beyond the reference to the charismatic uh, uh, personality of Recep Tayyip Erdogan and, uh, his, uh, and uh, uh, his party in many ways. So I would argue that today's populist uh, uh, moment did not come out of nowhere, but has its roots in Turkey's difficult democracy, as I call it. Uh, it has uh, its roots in a longer pol uh, history of appeals to the people, uh, and, uh, it has, and uh, the way that this people has been constructed by political elites in the Turkish context. Um, we must take into account, in order to understand today's populism, uh, the societal, political, and corporeal memory in the construction of the people and its relationship with political authority, and also trace the iterations of the people. I won't do this today, but uh, trace the iterations of the people as a political subject of the, the, the past 100 years of uh, Turkey's, uh, modern Turkey. Uh, as I say, obviously, I cannot do all this in the next few minutes. So I will merely try to sketch some of the elements of uh, uh, the book here. So now I should turn to this. And I should argue that uh, if one focuses on the key themes of uh, Republican discourse in Turkey and practice as well, uh, I, one can locate a series of what I call inconsistencies and, uh, uh, in the definitions of the people and the nation, which I think are key elements in Turkish political discourse. And, uh, uh, 
these inconsistencies uh, uh, prompted me to rethink the demo democratic promise of uh, uh, the Republican uh, discourse and tradition in Turkish politics. The first has to do with the binary divide between the actual people and, and idealized people or the nation. Uh, the citizens of the New Republic, in many ways, uh, if one looks at the sources and uh, the various discourses of uh, leading politicians of the time, uh, fell short of uh, uh, the idealized nation. They uh, were considered to be insufficient in many ways, uneducated, uh, not uh, sharing the ideals of the elites that were going to lead the Republic to uh, the Society of Modern Nations, as they called it. And, uh, so uh, uh, this uh, meant that quite often uh, we can see that the people are posited, are referred to as uh, servants, as workers that were supposed to build the nation and in the process, of course, reform themselves and uh, assume the uh, characteristics that the idealized nation uh, was supposed to take. Um, in the course of this task, uh, I think particularism and diversity, it's a fair point to make, were seen as problems, as incompatible with national popular unity, and this prompted a dual uh, or competing system of sovereignties. There was a sovereignty of the people who were invited to elect once uh, elections became uh, uh, allowed in uh, the Turkish Republic. Uh, so there was, a, in some ways, that sovereignty, but also there was a sovereignty that was exercised in the name of the nation, and uh, quite often uh, was exercised in order to uh, either uh, uh, police the excesses of the people and, of course, discipline those who committed these excesses. Um, I uh, think that, uh, in many ways, uh, in the book I describe the Republican discourse that has been used to, to achieve that in many ways as uh, the infantilization of the people. And uh, uh, this uh, uh, one can, can find literally in some of the key discourses of uh, uh, the leadership of the Republic, uh, the people called uh, effectively infants or incapable of uh, taking into uh, their hands the helm of the Republic in many ways. So um, uh, in this context, uh, Republic, the, the Republican elite discourse uh, 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 so that uh, so the state as uh, a, an entity that assumed the role of tutor and civilizer, uh, tasked to civilize what in the book I call the noble savages of Anatolia, and I'm making references to the literature on the noble savage, which I found extremely uh, uh, to the point with regard to that, and in the process turn them into members of the nation. Um, I would argue that uh, the Republic effectively acted, and I, I am using Dante here, as a purgatory, uh, in the sense that uh, uh, the people were, expe was, were expected to work, to change, to atone in some way, and uh, uh, to live up to the standards of the abstract nations. They were supposed to continuously strive to become something they were not. How did this happen? Through repression, first of all. Um, for example, if one looks at memoirs of the time, uh, of the early republic, one would see the gendarme, the, the uh, military police in some ways, uh, uh, taunting uh, people who failed to behave, to dress, to speak, as they were expected to, and quite often uh, also disciplining them. Uh, a second element was education and indoctrination in many ways. Uh, uh, the republic uh, uh, started a 
uh, I, I would say, a series of um, reforms that had an educational character. They uh, created the uh, people's uh, houses uh, where people were supposed to uh, get, uh, obtain skills, but also where they were supposed to uh, be inculcated with a, a republican kind of uh, consciousness and ideology. Uh, there were campaigns that uh, forced or encouraged citizens. Uh, we have some experts here that have talked about, uh, have written about, uh, for example, women to take off their uh, headscarves. Uh, we, uh, they, uh, there were campaigns that forced men, or again encouraged them very strongly, to uh, uh, abandon the more traditional attire for Western attire. Uh, there were campaigns that forced the population, or again encouraged them, to speak Turkish. Uh, and so on. Uh, so this was, I would say, the educational aspect of, the, uh, of this uh, uh, effort. And finally, and I think this is quite interesting, uh, there was this uh, uh, emphasis on the state also uh, assuming the role of the father. Uh, I use father because uh, uh, primarily it was Mustafa Kemal Ataturk that uh, assumed that role uh, during his lifetime. And... Uh, <coughs> Uh, we can see this, uh, uh, this role um, uh, primarily uh, taking place, materializing, through uh, what I would call an extra-institutional relationship between Mustafa Kemal Ataturk and his people, as he says in, in many of his speeches. Uh, his tours throughout the country, uh, instances when he's uh, sitting laid back and uh, listened to his people, uh, but also moments when he expressed his concern about uh, the people behaving in ways that they shouldn't, in many ways. Uh, underpinning this kind of, uh, uh, this, this kind, kind of emphasis of uh, uh, the Republic uh, uh, towards mistrusting the people and trying to police them and discipline them in some ways, uh, we can see that uh, 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 was the frequent disruption of multi-party competition once the competition was allowed. Uh, this uh, disruption uh, took uh, uh, the form of many coup d'etat, uh, coup as you can see, but also took the form of uh, court cases against political parties uh, and other interruptions of political, uh, of uh, uh, democratic politics in many ways. It, it normalized tutelage in some ways and uh, uh, weakened the efficacy of democratic institutions and at the same time uh, the legitimacy of democracy as a whole, at least as some interviews I have conducted which haven't found their place in the book, uh, indicate among the people. Um, it created a system that was suspicious towards the people, geared towards uh, uh, policing excesses and disciplining. And at the same time, uh, it uh, developed what I called earlier these competing sovereignties of the people and the state. So, um, in many ways, I would say that uh, if we take all these things into account and uh, we try to look at the current populist moment, and I'm at my last two slides, uh, so I will try to condense quite a lot here, uh, I think that uh, uh, this history can uh, give us quite a lot of uh, insights as to how to understand the populist movement of the past two decades. I think that uh, uh, it is, uh, uh, the book makes a very effective argument, hopefully, that uh, 
that uh, uh, the populism that we're facing today in Turkey emerged from the fissures, the cracks that uh, were created by the Republican state in its long history, 100 years long history, uh, which were expertly utilized by the current uh, Justice and Development Party and its leadership. It is in the abjection or marginalization of unworthy and untrustworthy citizens, uh, quite often uh, the black Turks uh, or the religious citizens of Turkey, that uh, uh, one can trace the expertly weaved constitutive moment of injustice that uh, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his entourage, entourage cultivated expertly, I would say. It is in these fissures that one can locate the power of the call for justice uh, the regaining of the denied, stolen, uh, I would say, sovereignty of the people that uh, has been exemplified in the outpouring of uh, people uh, after the coup of 20, uh, 2016 to protect their democracy in some ways. And these are not everybody. They are a part of the people, as, uh, but uh, 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 it is these instances that generalizations uh, 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 make quite a lot of sense. So the people came out in the streets to protect their democracy. Or when Hagia Sophia was uh, reconverted into a mosque, it is in the outpouring of people uh, to participate in the jubilation about uh, this activity, as, as uh, this uh, initiative, as an initiative that restores sovereignty to the people that was denied to them. Uh, populism was advanced by the utilization and construction of crises made possible by the Republican culture and institutions. The military interventions of 1997, of 2007, the execution of Adnan Menderes, the, the, the death of Turgut Ozal, have been used as elements of uh, uh, this attempt of the Justice and Development Party to uh, reproduce binary antagonistic discourses and uh, understanding the society to its own benefit. Uh, finally, uh, this allowed them to usher in a, a new political model premise on extra-institutional legitimation. Street democracy, for example, plebiscitary interactions with the leader at the expense of liberal representative democratic institutions, and an indivisible and contestable leadership of a United Nation are elements of this democracy. Um, the populist moment uh, and its majoritarianism has advanced understandings of the people as the sole bearer of rights and rejected particularistic or individual rights as divisive and aberrant. It has juxtaposed the hard to define or locate popular will, mili irade, for example, to parliamentary democracy, and uh, uh, that has, according to official discourse, uh, only frustrated the will of the people. It has advanced a notion of populist citizenship, for lack of a better term, uh, depending on relinquishing one's individuality and particularity. You can't be a citizen if you do not belong to the people. And in this context, difference has quite often been seen as threatening and externalized eventually. And now my concluding uh, words, since uh, I wanted to bring this book to the contemporary, to the moment, to the current moment. Uh, as we're moving towards the crucial elections of 2023, that's two months away from today, there are many who argue that all that it will take to reset Turkey to the path of democracy, to democracy, is the defeat of the current uh, president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I beg to differ and I try to argue about this in the book, uh, as I have uh, uh, suggested that the traditions of discourse and action that have enabled uh, the phenomenon uh, of Recep Tayyip Erdogan and of populism to flourish in Turkey today uh, are still uh, here and are still captivating. 
I, um, as uh, in many ways, the table of six leaders that uh, have been trying to find a way to challenge Erdogan, or as of a few days ago, of the five <laughs> leaders, uh, I would say, yes. Uh, uh, as they are discussing, yes, I thought this was a good, uh, yes, as they, were as they have been discussing, uh, you know, uh, about who is going to succeed Erdogan, a very kind of, uh, I, I would say, a very problematic discussion. There is so much urgent work that needs to be done to create the basis of, of a durable, pluralistic democracy that is functioning. I believe, uh, and, and as I say in the concluding sentence actually of the book, uh, the time of populism is here and now, with Erdogan or without. And I think that uh, uh, the political developments today indicate that uh, we're very close to this becoming a, a very valid point. I hope so anyway, and I don't hope at the same time. So uh, thank you very much for your patience, and I look forward to an enriching discussion uh, after, after this. Thanks. Thank you very much, Bill Wilson. The, I, I'm, um, I haven't read the book myself yet, but they, just to get a sense of that great, the, the, the sheer historical, cultural, political sweep of that book, I mean, it shows all sorts of uh, opportunities uh, for questions and discussions. So I will move now uh, to Bahar to say some comments. Hello, everybody. Um, uh, Spiro, I just want to thank you for inviting me to this uh, fantastic book launch. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I feel privileged that I actually uh, got to witness uh, the progress of this book throughout the years, and, um, and I really enjoyed reading it again. Um, so, um, I was a big fan of your work anyways, I, uh, I, I, I have been familiar with your work for a long time, but I think uh, this book uh, is extremely important, it's a masterpiece and it's, it will be a go-to book for uh, many people who, who are interested in Turkish politics. Uh, when I uh, read the manuscript for the first time, I actually thought that uh, this is a book on Turkey, yes, and it's a great contribution to Turkish studies, but it's an excellent book because it's theory-informed. Uh, it engages uh, with uh, different intellectual debates, and um, your analysis go beyond uh, descriptive analysis of Turkish politics. You know, uh, we have been reading a lot of uh, articles, books about... Um, um, how Turkey is becoming more and more authoritarian, etc. But your book uh, gives us um, like a process tracing um, account of uh, uh, what has happened in Turkey until now. So it, it just didn't come out of the blue. So the, the Turkey was never actually a fully fledged democracy. And you show us um, uh, the reason why. So uh, your book takes us on a journey uh, um, uh, in in different theoretical debates, it's interdisciplinary, so you, you know, you talk about uh, the Frankfurt School, and you talk about Derrida, and uh, Foucault, and then you, of course, uh, mention Laclau and Mouffe, and, uh, and you incorporate all these relevant uh, uh, theoretical debates and uh, from past to present, and you link them very well to the, the contemporary Turkish politics. So I always thought that um, um, theoretical contribution was your uh, departing point, although you, you provide us with a very empirically rich uh, book. And uh, I, I believe that you push the boundaries uh, in, um, in so many different debates from populism to, to Turkish politics. So the book treats Turkey as a case study. And uh, Spiro knows Turkish politics very well. Uh, he speaks the language, but he has been working on Turkey for a long time. 
so um, his aim was to enhance our understanding of the popular quote-unquote uh, in the study of politics and he, he, he contributes to these discussions by showing us how uh, the people were constructed in the Turkish context from the foundation of the Republic until today. So the book has uh, a lot of different insights to offer uh, in terms of um, conceptual, theoretical and empirical contributions. Um, so you look at uh, different traditions and modalities uh, of appeals to the people, you unpack power relations in Turkish politics, uh, you give us an account of socio-historical uh, debates in Turkish politics, you show us how the people changed over time, but how some things remained the same, just changed maybe colors, but uh, we, we can still talk about inclusion and exclusion in Turkish politics from uh, the first day, for, for the last 100 years, some undesired citizens stayed uh, undesired forever and they will remain so in, in, the, in the future as well. And some, some people were desired citizens once and then they, they changed because the political elites have changed. So you show us these kind of uh, nuanced discussions very well. And, uh, but you also make a contribution to populism studies because you show us that the meaning of uh, populism has also changed uh, in the Turkish context, but in, in, in the literature in general. Uh, so uh, you, your book has a critical edge because you show us that uh, populism as a concept has been stretched so much so that it's about to lose its meaning uh, and, and you want to make a critical intervention there. And within the Turkish context, you, you give a, a very nice uh, summary of uh, uh, Turkish studies and populism studies. And, uh, and you mention many scholars, including uh, Omar Tekdemir here. And, uh, uh, and you ask us uh, interesting questions. You say that uh, many Turkish uh, academics actually um, uh, looked at uh, populism within the Turkish context and said, you know, not only the AKP but many other parties also use populism. And uh, like Omar argued that uh, during the Gezi protests also the protesters use populism. So if everyone and everything is populist, then where do we draw the line? And you ask this question and you answer uh, the question very well and you show us that populism shouldn't be a catch-all term. There should be a nuanced discussion and I think you, you do it very successfully. Um, so the book is important because um, it also coincides with the centennial um, of uh, the Turkish Republic and, and you show us, uh, uh, you know, in order to understand what's happening today, let's go back to day one and then what happened, how the people were defined, how the nation uh, was defined by, uh, by the political elites because if you don't understand the main pillars of uh, the Turkish nation, which are being, you know, cracked nowadays by so many different actors, we won't be able to understand the, the, the democratic uh, decline in Turkey. So, um, I found uh, chapter two as the most important uh, chapter of the book, because you show us the late Ottoman period and the, and the political elites, the founding elites of the Turkish nation. And you say uh, very interesting things there. You, you look at their discourse and you look at party programs, Ismet Pasha's talks, uh, Atatürk's talks and Nutuk and etc. So you combine different sources and uh, you, you tell us that the, the political elite at that time used an anti-colonial discourse. And, uh, and they actually underlined all the injustices that the people have suffered. But in order to create the nation, they firstly had to create the people. And uh, this is uh, a well-known fact in Turkey studies, but the nuances that you give in the book are, are new, uh, because you also tell us how they created enemies in order to create the people. Um, one of the most interesting arguments of the book for me was that you, you mentioned that uh, they, the, the, the founding elite also had to colonize the Turks 
the indigenous populations in Anatolia. So it wasn't just colonizing the, the Kurdish population, etc., but the Turk, Turks also had to be colonized. And you tell us very well how the founding elites tried to cut the um, umbilical cord with the Ottoman Empire, how the empire was externalized, even like uh, alienated from the new discourse that was being created by the political elites. So the, you, you underline very well that the new imagined community, which Atatürk and his, um, uh, his friends uh, created, um, focused on the indigenous people of Anatolia, uh, who didn't have this awareness of being a nation, so they had to first embrace Turkishness themselves and then, you know, these definitions had to be, um, had to be defined and redefined again uh, in order to create this idea of self-determination and, uh, and legitimacy. So authenticity of Turkishness then was created by the, um, by the har harmonization of nationalist and populist discourses. So I think you have, you have done a great job there. Uh, so, of course, you mentioned uh, state's treatments towards Kurds, and uh, we can unpack this if there are any questions. You, you present ideas about secularism and how the, the founding elites um, used uh, secularism as a pragmatic utility uh, to do their boundary-drawing exercise, so I, I think you have done a great job there as well. Um, so uh, you also explain the role of Turkish hearts and girls' schools. Uh, I think these are really important and you have done archival work. So if anybody wonders what uh, he has done about this, uh, please ask questions. I think it's very important. So one thing I, I, I really enjoyed was that you talked about these milestones. So the 60 uh, coup and then the 71 um, um, uh, and, and you tell us very well how Kemalism then tur was turned into a free-floating ideology. You know, it was like Kemalism a la carte. Everybody chose whatever they liked from this ideology, which actually can be stretched to a certain extent that it doesn't mean anything. But I especially liked uh, when you said um, what you said after you described the uh, 1980 coup and how Islam was incorporated into the state discourse again. Um, and um, and uh, you, you talk about polarization during that time and you say uh, claiming to speak for the people in spite of the people, uh, keeping Atatürk's flame alive without getting burned proved a ha hard act to maintain. And I really like the sentence because it's uh, absolutely correct and, uh, and this is what happened. So it was uh, people, um, supporting people in spite of the people, etc. So um, my only criticism about your book was that um, the, 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 the early Republican period was um, analyzed in detail and uh, suddenly after the AT coup it was like a fast forward to uh, the AKP the period and um, I was wondering uh, was that a deliberate choice? Um, so uh, was there a continuation of the definition of people there so you didn't have to unpack much? And, um, and then you come, you bring the discussion to the Gaza protests and, you know, people were revolting against AKP who uh, claimed to represent the oppressed people and it was also a, a very seminal moment for Turkish politics. It made us question who are the people and did it even ever matter for the political elites what the people wanted throughout the whole um, the whole republic, and then you talk about how uh, Erdogan then embraced a vindictive approach uh, against the uh, Geza protesters, and this was a seminal moment because many, for many academics it, it's the time when the authoritarian turn has started completely. Uh, and, and then you say um, that he, he acts with emotions and with a vindictive behavior rather than, you know, um, 
compared to the previous discourse of reform and democratization, and you say how suitable this del deliberately uh, architectured divorce of emotion from empowerment is remains to be seen. So can, can he really distinguish between his vindictive behavior and, uh, and empowering the masses, which of course uh, now uh, it's even more clear. So when I look at the book overall, um, I saw that you used uh, a lot of different concepts, but uh, they, they are very telling. So when you talked about how state um, acted against um, uh, the Turkish people when they, when they wanted to create the nation and the people, um, they used a paternalistic approach, they infantilized the Turkish um, uh, people, and then um, you use um, concepts like disciplining, policing, supervision, uh, surveillance, monitoring, so this is very telling because this is actually what we're experiencing today as well, so there's continuity and change, but for the worse, unfortunately. Um, so when I uh, when I look at what, what I take away from your book and uh, when I look at what's happening today, um, I'll just uh, I'll just say that I think the definition of people um, changed for the political elites, but also uh, the undesired citizens uh, stay the same. And if you're not loyal to the imagined uh, vision for, for the state, then you're always ostracized in, in so many different ways. Uh, but today what we see is that the, the, the Kurdish movement, especially after the 90s, really managed to shake uh, the Turkish state to the core, I think. And, and the main pillars that you talk about, uh, they are being shaken by different actors. And uh, Turkey is the same, but it's different. And uh, our uh, father's generation were, were born in the 70s, so they experienced the Menderes era in the 70s. We are post-1980, uh, so we also experienced a different version of Turkey. I mean, um, maybe my colleagues will remember, you know, the national um, security uh, lessons at high schools where a high, highly uh, ranking officer comes and tells us about our internal and external enemies, etc. So our generation suffered from that and the, the reality was distorted again. And now the new generation, they have different priorities, but they're also questioning what the people really means. And we have the LGBTI movements, we have feminist movements, so things are changing. So if you can comment on the, this new era that would be great. Um, so, um, and the final comment is, uh, you say that the, the Republic was found on, founded on ontological insecurity that the political elite uh, experienced around that time. Um, I think when we look at today, this ontological insecurity is, uh, is still there and it's actually deepening uh, because uh, now we can actually challenge. Although the state became more authoritarian, uh, there's more resistance to it. People have voice, no matter what, because of globalization, because of social media, because of new ways of uh, challenging these authorities. So if you can comment on those as well, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let me uh, also um, express my gratitude. It's a real pr privilege to be here, part of this discussion. Um, I almost feel as an imposter in, in the sense that populism and political philosophy is, is not my field, but I'll try to do uh, my best. And just to kick us off, I think one uh, laudable thing that Spiros does uh, which is, sets a standard for any uh, form of social inquiries to problematize things. Being people is 
omnipresent in the political discourse in Turkey, the political practice as well. I mean, just on this picture, you have a party that evokes people. Um, there is another party that um, Bahar alluded to, which puts people in plural, um, the HDP. So at least two strands of Turkish political life reference the notion of people. And if you go to Turkey, uh, this is everywhere, this word. But what Spiros does is say, hey, let's stop for a second and unpack the concept that it's historical emergence. What does it mean? How is it employed? What political uh, purpose it, it serves? And how is abused, really, as well? So this is basically um, an absolute um, example how you generate a research agenda, um, just tracking the obvious that uh, almost feels me, uh, makes me feel jealous that you didn't, I, I didn't problematize it myself, and probably uh, it's how Bahar will feel as well. So that's number one. Number two, uh, the genealogical approach, informed by theory, but also deeply steeped into knowledge of the sources and, and the history. I think it's really, really important. Um, and really, across all those different periods, different permutations of the Turkish polity, you have the centrality of this notion, which, which, is, which is really interesting and, and challenging and provoking our uh, intellectual curiosity. And one theme that emerges is how people is constructed in a top-down manner, which is really counterintuitive because it conveys, the very word conveys this idea of uh, authenticity. Um, going back to how people in the 19th century in Germany sort of think about um, this folk tradition that it kind of springs from the the, the roots of the, of the nation and, and it's uh, opposed to the idea that the state is an artificial uh, creation. So uh, having people means that you have authenticity, but the actual historical record shows that it's not the case. I mean, people has been constructed and reconstructed, problematized from day one, right? Uh, and there are two questions in the book, and that's probably my first thing to put forward. That there are two debates going on. First of all, who is the people? The boundary of, of the political community, the body politic, if you will. The other one is who gets to speak on behalf of the people, to represent the people and to govern in their name. Almost echoing the, the famous phrase by Abraham Lincoln that uh, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it, different things going on there. Uh, so uh, that, that's really well nicely elaborated in the book how those two questions have been tackled over time by different political actors. Now, the other third theme I want to highlight in the book is the tension between nation and the people. It seems to me, based on your research, and correct me if my reading is to the point, there was almost implicit recognition uh, in the Turkish political practice and life that nation is an ideal, so you have to strive to, to build it because it also involves the ideal citizen uh, and so on, uh, ideal mode of engagement in politics. Whereas people has always been the building blocks, the, the, the raw material, if, if you will. Uh, of course, you're problematizing it, but also you're showing how those two things have been in tension. Uh, for, for a long time. Uh, the other thing that I take away from the book 
uh, something that I've reflected upon in, in my own work as well, is how AKP is a product of continuity. Uh, much of the popular reflection on Turkey looks at Erdogan and his movement as a radical rupture in Turkish political life. But what we see, of course, is that they follow in the footsteps or the trajectories that they inherited from the past. There's a lot of carryover. Uh, you tend to think it's about the fissures they exploit, the sort of the birth defects, if you will, of the Turkish state building and democracy building exercise. There's probably also the fact that um, if you think about populism not as an ideology but as a meta language, it's been around for quite some time, uh, employed by different leaders, so this reference to, to the popular will. And you had it equally on the left. I mean, there's interesting work about Turkey in the 1970s, looking at people like Gülen Dejevit as the quintessential populist. So Erdogan sort of piggybacked on a language that was already out there, and it was accepted as legitimate. So that's something uh, as well worth uh, reflecting on. But I also think that um, chief virtue of uh, the book, and it kind of connect, it's connected to this empirical point, is that it deconstructs populism. And that's how it relates to the generic literature in the field. Uh, there is a lively debate which is present in the book about whether populism is a destructive force or is there emancipatory potential. Um, people like Chantal Mouffe have, have contributed to this debate looking at the potential populism. I think there's some interesting work as well, which you didn't quote, but I'm sure you, you think, thought about it. Uh, in history, um, Nikos Mozelis, who was a professor here uh, at the LSE, actually looked at the early 20th century in Greece and the Balkans and also in South America and argued that the emergence of this earlier crop of populist parties was something opening participation and that's something as well probably worth bringing to the, to the table. But I think that's a point that's really well taken, uh, the idea that populism is a broad spectrum of different things. It's also stretched, as Bahar said, uh, but we, shouldn't, we should be open-minded when we reflect about this phenomenon, be it as ideology or as actual uh, practice. Which brings me to uh, my uh, questions. Uh, the first one is empirical. Um, lots of people, going back to this table of six discussion, have said that um, you should be careful who gets to run against Erdogan, because you might end up with another populist in his mold, and they have in mind the popular mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu. He has all the ingredients of this charismatic leader capturing democracy. And, um, but my question is, maybe to broaden it a bit more theoretically, um, is Populism now being refashioned, repackaged for the next political generation? And if that's the case, what is new and what is continuity um, compared to the populism we got to know uh, under the AKP, sort of Erdogan representing the down and out and bringing them to power? Um, second question going to again Muzelis and, and others. You've done work on other countries as well, in other regions. Um, in Greece, for instance, have not been no stranger to populist movements of various kinds. So if you want to put Turkey in comparative perspective, what is 
what insight can you um, derive from that? Um, what are your thoughts about neighboring countries as well, um, be it in the Middle East or Southeast Europe, how does Turkey compare? Of course, given all its specificity, its size, and the complexity of the issues Turkey society and political system have been coping with. And my third and final question has to do with my own area of interest, which is international politics. Um, we did say that much of this idea of populism is about how you reclaim power domestically, because the, the black Turks or the salt of the earth have been underrepresented and marginalized, and now they've achieved their goal of uh, seizing power, making Turkey a more authentic place. But there are scholars and policy analysts suggesting that now the struggle is taken to the international realm, so the other is not the self-appointed uh, elites, because they've been defeated, essentially. Turkey is waging a war externally, or this, this, this course is employed towards the foreign policy uh, field. Uh, so, and this is a book about domestic constitution, basically, and in political sociology, it doesn't necessarily venture into that, but I'm sure you've given some thought about the external implications of, of populism, this political style, rhetoric, um, leadership thinking, or even political ideology. But thanks again for giving me the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure to engage with the book, and I'm looking forward to this debate. Apologise, I've been so bad at timekeeping. Um, my my excuse, which is maybe not a good one, is sometimes I slip back into that moment as a student that when I'm hearing something that I really enjoy, I just sit back and and enjoy it. Um, just so I, I beg your forgiveness on that. I think we we we're, able, we're due to finish at half past. For those that can stay, I want to maybe add another ten minutes max extra. And rather than get Spilwas to respond to the questions which have been raised, because there have been multiple questions there, I'm going to ask him, if, if he can, maybe to fold in those answers to some questions in the audience. So I want to give us at least an opportunity for a couple of rounds of questions. And where those questions correspond to questions from our panel, maybe you can then, then, then uh, respond in that way, if that's fine, yeah? So just so I can give you folks an opportunity to to take part. So what I suggest is we have a roving mic. Yeah, good. Um, um, let's take two questions. Uh, anybody, two questions initially. Over here. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Omar Tekemir from Coventry University. <clears throat> um, my question is, as you mentioned, sir, is inconsistency, the definition of the people. Um, I think um, the definition of people, um, if you look at the history of the Turkey, never socially constructed or organically. It's always rather a political project uh, from uh, the Mitar mentioned, you know, top-down approach. Um, my question is very specific. Um, how do you see, is there any consistency during the AKP's terms uh, on definition of the people? Considering literature, you know, people actually defines uh, different terms of the AKP's, which I actually call whether hegemonic or post-hegemonic moment of the AKP. Um, the second question also linked with, uh, with this one. I'm trying to keep um, very short. Um, 
The discourse of AKP, as, as you mentioned again, pure people um, as black Turks against the corrupt elite, uh, which is, you know, Kemalist Moshe, right? And um, so since AKP leadership became elitist themselves, some of them lives in Yalas uh, on the Bosphorus. So how do you see this discourse uh, and also the, the function of a populism? Do you still really call AKP's um, politics as populist or not? Thank you. Thank you. And there was a question at the back. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your uh, presentation. Um, uh, Mark Sanawiro from the uh, LSE. So I, I had two, uh, two quick questions. So first of all, um, in terms of populism and just the possibility of kind of maybe re-articulating different types of populism, I mean, do you think that when we look at the sort of different diverse forms of populism that have emerged. So, you know, there's the right-wing right populism, left-wing populism, arguably the Gezi protests, for instance. I mean, do you think that there is a potential there for something different to be re-articulated from within that, or to what extent do you think that would just sort of fall back on this kind of structure that you've uh, kind of highlighted, the sort of structure of the people and the sort of elitist, um, you know, that kind of mechanism uh, that you mentioned, which prevents the sort of institutionalization of representative uh, democracy, maybe. Uh, and secondly, I just had a question also about the uh, international uh, dimension. So I was just wondering to what extent that the, especially if you look at the sort of early republic, uh, to what extent do you think maybe sort of international ideas, maybe like Wilsonian ideas of nationalism, this idea of the sort of standard of civilization being combined with you know, nationalism, this sort of international context maybe also uh, shaped a lot of the policies of the um, early republic and the sort of um, manifestations of, of populism there. Thank you. Uh, thank you for those questions. So we'll hold off on uh, questions for the moment and spill us. So you can respond to any, all of those questions in a way perhaps which relates to some of the questions from our discussants. Certainly, yes. Um, I don't know if you can hear me. Uh, just uh, uh, let me try to organize this. Uh, yes. Just wait a second. Another book, sorry. I think a productive way of answering uh, some of these questions in a quick way is to talk about uh, the notion of the people. Uh, and its association with populism, and when the notion of the people is not associated with populism. And uh, uh, I don't have uh, uh, the magic answer to this, but uh, in the book I develop um, a kind of dual um, approach to popular politics. I, when I discuss, for example, Gezi, but also I link it with a, a series of what I call plebeian movements, uh, I am uh, trying to argue that uh, there is a notion of the popular that uh, uh, has diversity at its core. And uh, uh, at the same time, we have very rare occasions when this uh, notion of the people as a diverse kind of uh, assemblage, or uh, I would say community, let's call it, uh, has really uh, mobilized to take over the state. Whereas in the case of populism, we see, according to my own definition, and of course that's 
can be contestable or don't, uh, uh, we see that uh, there is a notion that, that emphasizes unity, emphasizes the people as a bearer of rights, and at the same time, uh, it is uh, state-oriented. It is. It is. Uh, it revolves around taking over, uh, in some ways, govern the government. Uh, if I can be oversimplistic here, so I would see, for example, the Gezi uh, mobilizations as uh, uh, the Caracaso Venezuelan mobilization, as uh, a lot of uh, other mobilizations in other parts of the world, as uh, plebeian mobilizations. And I would see the more, I would say, uh, authoritarian and uh, uh, centralized mobilizations as populists. Now, uh, how this is working in the case of, uh, of uh, Turkey, I would argue, or uh, the question about left uh, populism and right populism. I uh, beg to differ with most uh, theorists uh, uh, in their attempt to look for left and right populism. I believe that populism as I define it, and that's of course uh, important because other people define it differently, has an inherent anti-democratic uh, core. Whereas, for example, plebeian politics is a much more open uh, uh, way of thinking about the people as pluralistic, plural, uh, let's call it, and diverse. And uh, there we would say, as I mentioned, Gezi, and if we want to see a permutation of this into party politics and state-oriented politics, we could say, to, with a lot of reservations, I would say, that the head of the People's Democratic Party uh, has been a case of this kind of pluralistic approach to the people. Uh, the, the, the use of the plural uh, peoples uh, is indicative to that uh, in, in this way. Uh, although, I must say, and we had a discussion earlier with Bahar, uh, uh, and uh, I raised uh, uh, reservations, and I think you, you shared the reservations in some ways about uh, 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 not being able to just uh, uh, consider the whole party uh, a, a party that's committed to this kind of pluralistic kind of um, uh, politics. I will quickly try to uh, also answer uh, the, you mentioned the issue of emotion and empowerment. Uh, all politics have an element of emotion, and I don't want to say that uh, populism is characterized by emotion. What I'm emphasizing, and you pointed it out very well, I think, is that um, populism, uh, in the case of Turkey, for example, emphasized uh, emotion disproportionately to other aspects of politics. And therefore, it divorced uh, this emotional element from the project of empowerment. So yes, we cannot celebrate that Hagia Sophia became a, a, a mosque in many ways, and we can be very emotional about it. But what does this do in terms of empowering the people that have died in the earthquakes, that are homeless, that uh, uh, it is a performative kind of sovereignty, but not actually a substantive uh, aspect of sovereignty. Um, I, I think I tried to answer who are the people. First of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about the emotion issue. I uh, also um, would like to uh, talk a little bit about the international context. Uh, interestingly, Nadine took the uh, um, initiative of bringing some of uh, uh, this uh, uh, paper, this paper actually that I have written, uh, in which I tentatively try to link populism with foreign politics, or uh, yes, foreign politics. 
I, uh, I think that, first of all, an easy answer is to look at uh, uh, Turkish foreign policies as, in some ways, um, uh, uh, having a domestic dimension. Therefore, Turkey as a hegemonic power, or an aspiring hegemonic power, uh, works well also at home in some ways. It, it, uh, and it, it uh, allows the government to show that something's going well, uh, or, or many things are going well. Uh, the second element, I think, has to do with uh, uh, the insecurity of Turkey's uh, current regime, I would call it regime, in the sense that uh, an international presence in many ways are uh, it's probably the same argument, but what I want to say is uh, it links it, it gives us resources internationally. It allows it to validate its uh, own um, approach to politics, its own choices, but also it, uh, it uh, sends a message that uh, the model that is followed by Turkey is a model that is uh, viable elsewhere and uh, is uh, sometimes also appreciated elsewhere. Uh, so I can see links. There are many more links that one can, uh, for example, how foreign policy is conducted also has to do with populism, but also it has to do with a new constitution that uh, allowed uh, a person to be responsible for all uh, the good points that uh, uh, foreign policy can, all, all the positive aspects of foreign policy, uh, but also all the failures. So it is a quite interesting way of how foreign policy has changed because of populism and, of course, the, the, the new constitutional arrangements. Um, there was a question about... Uh, uh, excuse me, I'm going very quickly through the... Uh, um, yes, uh, uh, about the, how uh, uh, the AKP discourse on the people has changed in its uh, uh, career trajectory. I would argue that uh, the AKP in its early phase, and I would... Uh, Roughly uh, say that it is close to the end of the first decade, beginning of the second decade of the century, uh, has been uh, more open to a more pluralistic understanding of uh, the people. Uh, some people say it was a cynical kind of calculation, some other people say it was a, 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 a genuine embracing of the diversity of Turkey. I think it was, it was in some ways both. It was uh, the need to see Turkey as a, a, a diverse. Uh, society, uh, because in this diversity also there was the promise of empowerment of the constituency of the AKP, and also an, ex and an large constituency of the AKP. Uh, the second was a cynical calculation that uh, uh, this would uh, uh, weaken the Kemalist kind of uh, notion of the nation and the people. And we see that uh, uh, I use Duran's uh, uh, move from the politics of patience to the, politi uh, to the politics of confrontation. I don't see eye to eye with Duran's uh, uh, political positions, but I think this is a very interesting way of showing how the AKP eventually, uh, the Justice and Development Party, became a party that uh, started looking at the people in a much more restrictive and unitary kind of way. So, yes, I think there were two phases. Um, yes. Um, uh, about the early republic and Wilsonian. Uh, a notion of self-determination. I think that the Republic used and probably uh, saw, the Republican elite saw its role as a, an emancipatory and uh, uh, anti-colonial one. Therefore, Wilsonian principles apply there. Uh, my argument is, however, 
that, uh, and this is common in many anti-colonial movements, the people that were supposed to fight the war of uh, liberation didn't exist yet. It had to be invented, and it's still being invented, as we, uh, I think, uh, we all said. I, I don't know if I didn't, if I answered all the questions or not. But uh, please, uh, yes, if if I haven't. I think we have to stop there because we've, we've used our extra ten minutes up. So I uh, apologise to those of you who can't uh, ask a question in this moment. But I'm sure this 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 debate about the book has only just started, and there've been lots of opportunities to 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 engage with Spiros about the themes in the book. And please go and read the book if you uh, or recommend it perhaps to your to your library, your university library, your local library, um, and. On that uh, uh, point, um, thanks all of you for coming here. Thanks to our, our discussants today. Uh, thanks to Spiros for this, this fantastic presentation. Thanks Nadine and Salma, my colleagues from the Middle East Center for setting everything up. I apologize to both of them for my, my shoddy timekeeping. I'll try and improve in future. Um, and thank you everybody. Okay. Thank you.